Our text is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. I shall speak now upon what the new confession of 1967 has done to the church. Next Sunday evening, the Lord willing, I shall speak upon what the new confession has done to all of the various pagan religions. And there's a very definite sense in which the new confession of 1967 cuts the nerve of foreign missions and prepares the way for a blending and a syncretistic development among all the various religions of the world. And I'm very anxious that everybody will have an opportunity to hear this message. However, at the present moment, we're going to look at the church. And in the new confession, the church becomes all important, becomes powerful, very, very powerful. It is to be a great church. Dealing with the political and social and economic affairs of mankind and of the governments of the world. Thus far, we have observed that the Confession of 1967 was deemed necessary because the old Confession, the Westminster Assembly, expressed the views of people some 300 years ago, and we have outgrown many of these ideas. And as the Church has progressed and grown in her experience, we now must summarize such an experience for 67 with the full assurance that uh, those who follow after us will even have different ideas from which we've had and they will write their confessions of 1987 and 1997 the idea that there is a body of truth which abides and which doesn't change has been abandoned and the new idea is that we're in a process of spiritual and religious development and evolution, which we represent by the different statements which are adopted as the human race moves along and as the church grows. We reject such an idea totally and completely. We believe in a revelation a deposit, an oracle. God has delivered something to us. And that something is his word, which he's given to us by the prophets and the apostles. But the new confession has found a great deal of difficulties with the Bible, so they have to lay aside the ordination vows, as we saw. The first one which says the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. We lay that aside because we don't believe that anymore. 
And the second one is that uh, we lay aside the idea that there's a great system of doctrine. A system of doctrine. There's a plan. There's an order. There's a purpose. Oh, it's beautiful. What God has given to us. But we lay that aside. Then I sought to show you what the new confession did to Jesus Christ. In the new confession, Jesus Christ is a sinner. In the new confession, he's not virgin born. In the new confession, the language is so general and so expressed that when you make references to his death or to his resurrection, you may consider these matters to be symbolical, or you may consider them to have some spiritual value only. And the church has opened the door for fellowship and presence in her midst of those who no longer believe that Christ was without sin, or that Christ was indeed the second person of the eternal trinity. Then last Sunday night together we developed this teaching of the new confession concerning the cross. And we endeavored to show you that the new confession says that the cross is a mystery. And they seek to take the great teachings of the Bible concerning the vicarious substitutionary atonement and the great transaction of that cross and relegate these matters to the realms of theory. And then they seek to hide all this mystery and all these theories back up here somewhere in the love of God. And that's all they talk about is the love of God, but they have no cross with any blood. And we saw it. That's what they did to it. And sometimes as I think about this, they come just as close as they can to the cross, but they are determined not to bear testimony to its real truth. Same thing in regard to the Bible. They reject the Bible as the infallible word of God, and yet they praise it, and they speak in high terms of the Bible, and... It makes no difference how you may exalt or eulogize or praise the Bible as long as it is the words of man and not the infallible word of God. You dishonor it and you reject it. But now we come to the question of the church. And what we have and what uh, is so interesting for us to see now is that as we lay aside the Bible... The church moves in to take a place of prominence, take the place. And as we lay aside the emphasis upon the individual, the community comes in to be the dominant and the uh, main emphasis that we must now present. And so we turn from the Bible to the church and we turn from the individual to the community. That is the transition when it comes into this matter of the church. I uh, want you to recognize that in this new confession, and those of you who have copies of it in your hand, find that the great second part deals with the mission of the church and paragraph number one is entitled Direction. Direction. 
And what's interesting about it is they have changed the direction. But you don't recognize it at first, but it's here just the same. They have given the church a, an entirely different direction. And then the second paragraph deals with forms and order. And the first thing that they're concerned about is to convince the church, the people of the church, and those who occupy the pews of the church, that they've got to lay aside the old concepts of the church and they've got to develop a new concept for the church. And in line 297, the institution of the people of God change and vary as their mission requires in different times and places. Beloved, the institution of the church of Jesus Christ does not change and its mission doesn't change as circumstances may change from time to time. The church, as I pointed out in my message this morning, is a divine, godly, ordained institution. God has ordained it and established it. It's not for us to manipulate it and turn it around. We're seeking to carry on the work of the church according to the pattern and the plan that God has given us in the Holy Scriptures. In the Old Testament, he told them how they wanted the tabernacle built, and they built it the way he told them to build it. And in the New Testament, he's told us how he wants us to operate the church, and it's our task to follow the New Testament teaching concerning the nature and the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. But the New Confession says the institutions of the people of God change. Now, the reason they say that is because they're changing it, and they want it to be changed, and they're laying a foundation in the New Confession for the change. The church is not to change in her position. She's under the Word of God, and she must exalt the Word of God. The church is not to change in her message. The message is identically the same. And what we have here is that the leaders of the church in our day are now saying that the church must change and our message must vary to meet the changing times and conditions of our particular day. And our emphasis is that instead of conditions changing the church, the church and its message must change the conditions. And instead of the world determining the program and the nature of the church's ministry, the church, through its ministry, must change the world by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when you read this, next sentence, it's on line number 299. The unity of the church is compatible with a wide variety of forms, but is hidden and distorted when variant forms are allowed to harden into sectarian divisions, exclusive denominations, and rival factions. Now what they have done at that point in the new creed is to give a confessional basis for the great church union movement and for the great ecumenical church. 
The unity of the church is compatible with a wide variety of forms. Let's get a big unity, bring all of them in now. It's a wide variety. We'll have one great big body with all these things in it. And this unity is hidden and distorted when variant forms are allowed to harden. And this is the attack which has been going on in our day against the various denominations of the Protestant world, attacking them as sinful, attacking them as something which we must now eliminate, and we must bring all our churches together in one great superstructure. And that's in the New Confession. Let's put it right in there. And as we turn away from a Bible with its power, we now look to a church and an organization of men as they're working in bringing these great bodies together so that it can have more power. And it's in the power of this great united body that they're developing that they now look in order that they may influence the affairs of nations and change the structures of society. And at this point, you can see just as clearly you can see just as clearly as can be that they're turning from a Bible with its power of God to a powerful church with the dreams and the agencies of men. And that's where we're going. And the only power, as I pointed out in my message this morning, is the power of the gospel. The power is not in the church. The power is in the blood. The power is not in an organization. The power is in the Holy Ghost. And it's the preaching of the gospel which the Holy Ghost accompanies and which the Holy Spirit uses in the hearts of men. So the first thing that I want you to see in the new confession is that they have laid a foundation for a turning away from the old concepts of the churches to a great united concept of one great world church. And actually, they have laid the foundation in this confession for the Presbyterian Church, the United Presbyterian Church, to cease to be the United Presbyterian Church as it moves into this big ecumenical union. It's all there, just as clear as can be. The pattern has been outlined and the structural basis so far as the creed is concerned is now prepared for it. And these men intend to go ahead. They intend to push. They intend to drive in this great program to bring all these churches together in one great super organization. And that's where they're going. And beloved, you're not going to be able to avoid it. You're not going to be able to get away from it. The influence is going to become so dominant and the appeal so great as they use the press and the radio and the television, all of these things to bring the ideas along this line before the people so they can bring them in and herd them along in the great mass movement as they seek to develop this world church. And that's why this sermon tonight is important that you understand it. It's not the church that we're seeking to glorify. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ which we seek to honor. It's not an organization made up of men being led by men down here on the earth that we want to manifest in great glory. We want the glory of God which is manifest in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now as you look at this new confession, there's another tremendous emphasis. And it's an entirely different direction. 
from what we've had in the past. Will you turn with me right to the very beginning of this new confession? It's on page uh, 186. The first sentence under the section dealing with the church. To be reconciled to God is to be sent into the world as his reconciling community. Here's a reconciling community, which is another term for the church. And to be reconciled is to be sent out here into this world as this reconciling community. And then we find this same emphasis uh, over a little further uh, in this uh, new confession on page 188. In 188, uh, the uh, writers of the new confession are speaking more about the church, and it says here, quote, each member is each member is the church in the world endowed by the Spirit with some gifts of ministry and is responsible for the integrity of his witness in his own particular situation. Each member is the church. Each member becomes the church in the world and as such he's giving witness to this church. That's the way it's expressed at this particular juncture. Now we come back and we find uh, a further uh, emphasis on the uh, absorption of the individual, the absorption, I would call it, of the individual into this community with the emphasis being upon his place and being upon his identification with this community. Now, beloved, when I turn to the Westminster Confession of Faith, I don't run into a chapter dealing with the church until I get clear down to the end of it. When you turn to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the first thing you run into when you start reading it is chapter 1, which deals with the Bible. And then you come to God, and then you come to Christ, and then you come to the whole pattern and the plan of redemption. And do you know the Westminster Confession of Faith does not put its emphasis on the church? It puts its emphasis upon the Bible and what the gospel does to the individual. It's the preaching of the gospel that comes to the individual, regenerates him, justifies him, sanctifies him, and all the revelation of God for what he's going to do for you and in you by the power of the gospel is the emphasis of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, when you come to the new confession, you get none of that. Nothing on justification. Nothing on sanctification. The individual in the new confession is absorbed into the community. And the community becomes the big emphasis. And this community becomes what is here called a reconciling community. And what they are doing, beloved, as they've left the Bible to one side, they've brought the church in, they've taken the people in the church and subordinated the individual 
to the great community program and to the great emphasis which the church itself is now going to promote and undertake here upon the earth. It really changes the situation so far as the place and so far as the function of the individual. It changes it radically. Now, there's still another uh, reference here in this regard. And in the section on the church, which I have written in my book, I have developed this. It's on page 52. Each member is the church in the world. I just read that to you. Endowed by the Spirit with some gifts of ministry. Now, this is the continuation. He is entitled to the guidance and the support of the Christian community and is subject to its advice and correction. The Christian community now is the church and the individual out here is entitled to guidance and support from this Christian community and he is subject to its advice and its correction. Now listen to the next sentence, and I want you to underscore this one. He in turn, in his own competence, helps to guide the church. Isn't it nice we've got competence to help guide the church? Isn't that a nice one for you? When I read that, I said, my, we certainly have got some important people now. They're going to help guide the church. Beloved, the church doesn't get its guidance from you. The church gets its guidance out of the Bible and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And you aren't competent to guide the church and to help determine the message and the program of the church. God determined the program of the church. God gave to us the message of the church. And your competence and your place in the church is one who's been redeemed and you want to help hold up the message of the cross so that others can be redeemed as you have been redeemed. Let me read this to you again. When I read this, I just absolutely almost became petrified because I don't see how in the world this crowd's going to get very much guidance if they depend upon what they've got to do it, what they have to produce it. How in the world are they going to make out? Listen to this. Each member is the church in the world. Oh, beloved, each member ought to be the light of the world, and ye represent Christ. You're in this world to represent Jesus Christ, not some organization that men have set up. Endowed by the Spirit with some gifts of ministry, and is responsible for the integrity of his witness in his own particular situation. So you've got situation ethics, if you would call it. You fix it out in your situation. 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 Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we preach from this pulpit, applies to every situation. And whenever you go out to be a witness, you have only one witness to give. And that's the witness to the Lamb of God, the witness to Jesus Christ, as that's been revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. And then we go on with this continuation. He is entitled to the guidance and the support of the Christian community and is subject to its advice and corrections. Oh, the church is going to give you your guidance from now on. And the church is going to give you your correction from now on. 
No, beloved, the guidance which you receive is from the Word of God. And the Christians in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily, testing whether these things were so. And whatever Paul said, whatever the ministry says, whatever comes to you from the pulpit, you must go and test it by the Word of God. And then the next phrase, and this is the one that I want you to see, he in turn, in his own competence, helps to guide the church. I wonder what kind of a message we would have if we tried to make it up out of the minds of a lot of unregenerate church members. I wonder just where we would come out. But that's it. It is revolution. It is changing the whole program and the ministry of the church of our blessed Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, now I want to take you one step further. There's something in this that almost partakes of blasphemy. And it's very, very disturbing when you see it. I've discussed it on page 49 of my little outline. And it's under this section on directions. The church now embarks on an entirely new and untried path. Now listen to this. Many people would read it and say, that sounds good to me. But it isn't when you realize what they're saying. Quote, The life, death, and resurrection and promise coming of Jesus Christ has set the pattern for the church's mission. Has set the pattern. Now they should have gone ahead and said the life and the death and the resurrection and the second coming, here's the message the church is preaching. But no, it's not that at all. That's just a pattern for the church's mission. And what do they do? They bring the church in and they say the church is to follow this pattern. The church is to die. The church is to be raised from the dead. The church is going to come again. The church. And they have taken what the Bible gives us concerning Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming again. No one else has that but Christ. No one else has that but the Son of God. And now that's the pattern for the church's mission. It isn't anything of the kind. The church has one mission. And Jesus Christ said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. But here they've taken these great things concerning Christ. They've laid him aside. And now they say the church is going to have this pattern. Would you kindly tell me when the church died on a cross for sin? It never has. It never did. It never can. That's not a pattern for the church. The church isn't going out and dying on some cross for somebody's sin. Jesus did that and only Jesus did it. That's what it says. But it's beautifully put there and you say, well, they've got a reference to the death and reference to the resurrection. Is that the pattern? Beloved, when is the church going to rise from the dead on the third day? Would you kindly tell me? Where's the empty tomb out of which the church came? 
There is no such thing. Beloved, that empty tomb had in it the body of the Son of God, and when he came up, it was empty. And no church is going to be put in a tomb like Jesus was and come out as a pattern of its ministry. That's not the pattern of the ministry of the church. The purpose of the church is to do exactly what I'm doing tonight. Stand up and preach the word of God. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Teach them what? All things which I have spoken unto you. Now you know why they have this idea that the church is going to die? You know why? I want to tell you why it's there. Do you know what these gentlemen are saying? They're going to build this great union, this great ecumenical union. They're going to put all these churches together. And they say now that the churches must be willing to die. And then they'll be resurrected inside the big church. And that'll be their new life. And they say it over and over again. The churches must die. The churches must die. No, beloved. The churches must not die. They must be alive and they must preach the message of the cross. And that's all they're supposed to do, is to preach the whole counsel of the God. But how they take this and twist it around and they say the church is going to die. Well, I think maybe their churches are dying. But they're not dying for the reason that Christ died. They're dying because they don't have any word and they don't have any power and they don't have any life. But they're dying all right. And that's the reason why I put the title of my book, The Death of a Church. Beloved, there's only one thing that can keep the church alive, and that's the Holy Ghost. There's only one thing that can keep the church alive, and that's the gospel which saves sinners and gives to them the gift of everlasting life. That'll keep a church alive. Nothing else will. All right, let's move a step further. You know, beloved, when I begin to expound this to you, and I look at you, dear people, and I said, am I getting through to you people? Are you people getting these things? And when you think of the millions and millions of church people in this country that are nice, good people, and they have good motives and good purposes, and all this is going on up here and taking place, and nobody seems to know about it, nobody tells them about it, they don't even begin to comprehend what's being done. And you have a tremendous revolution taking place in the very nature of the church, the very basis of the church, the very function of the church, and it's taking place right in their very midst and they don't even know it. They don't even recognize it's taking place. But now I want to take you to the great climax of all of this. And I want to develop this for you because this is the climax of it. They talk here about the church's ministry of reconciliation. The church's ministry of reconciliation. And this community becomes the reconciling community. Oh, beloved, I stand in this pulpit and it just breaks my heart to see this thing done. Beloved, if you're going to be reconciled to God, the church doesn't do it. If you're going to be reconciled to God, we're not the reconciling community. We're nothing of the kind. All in the world we are 
are the bearers of a message. We have a message that's been put in our hands. And the whole work of reconciliation has been accomplished and completed for us by God. Church doesn't take part in the reconciliation community of some sort. Beloved, if you are to be reconciled to God, you recognize that you have nothing to do with that reconciliation. You have nothing whatever to do with this great work of bringing you back to God. You can't get up and take one step on the road back to God. It's impossible for you to do anything to bring yourself near to God or to bring you into a place where you can say, Lord, I'm ready to be reconciled. Why not get together and let's discuss the subject? No, beloved, the reconciliation that the Bible speaks about is a great and glorious act of God when on the cross of Calvary Jesus died for our sins and paid the complete penalty. He removed every barrier. And when it comes to being reconciled to God, you don't have anything to do with it. God does it all. It's all on his side. It's all on his part. And he sent his son down here to take our sins upon his own body and to die for them. And all in the world you and I have to do is to go out and say, my friend, be reconciled, be reconciled, be reconciled, be reconciled. And he says, how? Believe the gospel which God has provided so that you may be delivered from your sins. And the only thing you need to do to be reconciled to God is to believe that Christ died for you. That's all. The church isn't a reconciling community. It's a company of people that are maintaining the preaching of the word. That's all. Now, let me take you this next step. When they talk about the church being the reconciling community, oh my, they now say that the church is going to provide this reconciliation from man to man in the social area, the social field, in the political field, in these great areas of civil rights and poverty and communism and sex. I'm going to get into these subjects with you as I develop these messages in the next few weeks. But, beloved, when they come at this point and take this word reconciliation, we have a ministry of reconciliation. Our ministry is to tell you that God sent his son to die for you and you believe and you'll be reconciled to God. But they don't accept that way. No, we come now in the church under the competence of your guidance and with your assistance is going to develop a program whereby we're going to reconcile the laborer with the capitalist. We're going to reconcile, reconcile the poor with the rich. We're going to reconcile our capitalistic society with the communist society. We're going to have the greatest program of reconciliation you ever saw, and the church is going to provide it for the nations. That's it. And do you know what that is? I'm going to try to explain something to you that's usually very difficult to explain, and maybe I can explain it tonight. I hope I can. But their program of reconciliation 
is bringing opposing parties together by means of concessions and compromises between the parties. That's their message. Their program as the community of reconciliation. The church now is going out into the political field and the social field and to reconcile the disputes that we have with the labor and the management and we get into these areas and the church has the ministry of reconciliation to the conflicts in the labor management field. And the church has the ministry of reconciliation in the conflict between the East and the West. And how is it going to be done? Well, by getting together, by dialogue, by so-called understanding. The word reconciliation at this point is taken out of the Bible and had read into it a content and a meaning which isn't anywhere to be found so far as the gospel of Jesus Christ is concerned. They have perverted a tremendous concept of the scripture. But this is the way it works. And I want you to see it. Here's, I'm going to describe it for you. And then when I get through describing it for you, I'm going to give it the kind of title it ought to have. But here's an opposing view over here. Here's another view over here, and these views are in conflict, and that's the struggle we're engaged. And I'm going to use, if you will, please, uh, the conflict between the communist world and the free world. Uh, I'll speak one night on that subject, but I want to use it. Here they're in conflict, and we're going to have to reconcile. And the church now is going to be the reconciling community in these areas. And we're setting a great example right now by having all the churches from the Iron Curtain countries with the churches in the United States, all of them in the World Council of Churches. And we're all getting together in these areas. And we're going to have to bring the nations of the world together in unity so they can have peace. And how do you do it? Well, the idea is that they'll come into closer relationship as the conflict is joined and as they speak about reproachment and uh, the men over here on the side of the west are willing to make certain concessions and the men over here they'll say you'll have to make certain concessions and you come a little closer together and then you finally get united on this point we say we've gotten together and then all of a sudden the new point becomes a a point of issue and somebody else gets a big struggle over that one and they begin to fight along about that and then you come together and you have uh, a word which is being used today and you hear it but you don't get the significance of it. They call it consensus. Consensus. And the consensus is that you bring this opposing view, this opposing view, and you bring them together in a consensus. And that gives you the reconciliation they're talking about. But when you get this new consensus here, then you have another conflict dividing, attacking this, and then the conflict goes all over again, and then you have to have that reconciled, and you get another consensus. Now, do you know what that is? That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what you call the dialectical. The communists call it dialectical materialism. Philosophically, it's Hegelian. The Hegelian, the great philosopher Hegel, discussed the sequence of history in the terms of what he called the dialectic. And history is nothing but opposing parties coming together. 
here's a, a thesis and here's an antithesis and they clash and they clash and they clash and finally they come together in a synthesis. And then the synthesis becomes a new thesis and you have another antithesis and you have a struggle and a struggle and a struggle and a struggle. And finally they come together in another synthesis and then that synthesis becomes a new thesis and then another fight and an antithesis and a struggle and a struggle and a struggle and a struggle and when you get that brought together you have another synthesis and that is the dialectical that's what it is now just look at what it does to you here we are over here is a Christian religion we're not going to be a party to compromising it in order to have some kind of a synthesis. Here's the revelation of God, which supports, supports the one and only gospel of salvation. We're not going to compromise so we can have some kind of a synthesis. We're not going to do it. So here we stand. We won't compromise. We won't yield. And beloved, I want to say to you tonight that this is the battle. This is the struggle with the mind of our country and the mind of people tonight. And it goes right to the very heart of this thing. Imagine starting out over here with this position of freedom and then you make compromises for the sake of unity and then you get a new position. Then you make compromises for the sake of unity and then you make compromises for the sake of unity. And after you've done it three or four times, you're a million miles away from where you started. And that's what's happening to our world tonight. The communists say it. The ungodly say it. But how our political leaders do not understand it. But you and I say it. We're fully aware of it. And here now in the new confession, what do they say? Why, we must adapt our message to the conditions of a given time. And when the issues of our day have to do with civil rights, we've got to get a message for civil rights. And when the issues of our day have to do with poverty, we've got to reconcile the poor and the rich. And when the issues of our day have to do with communism, we've got to reconcile communism with our side. And you've got a dialectic, a dialectic, a dialectic. And what do they call it? Reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. And that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a million miles from what the Bible teaches concerning the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. I've used an illustration or two of this in times past. I don't know whether I've used it here in the church, but let me just use you a simple illustration. Maybe this young girl can understand it. Two plus two equals what? Four. Bless your heart, she knows that. Two plus two equals four, does it? Are you sure? How do you know? Who told you? Well, but now just a minute. We're living in an enlightened age. We're living in a day when tremendous knowledge is... And we have... Uh, we have some great thinkers who've been able to develop the theory of relativity and a few other things. We've even got a new mathematics now and 2 plus 2 equals 6. What are you laughing about? I'm just using this as an illustration, but 2 plus 2 equals 6. Now, how in the world do you think we'd get around down here at the bank if you had some people come in calculating their funds on 2 plus 2 equals 4 and the other half of town came in calculating their funds on 2 plus 2 equals 6? Wouldn't we have a nice affair down here at the bank of the town? We were, some of you folks would get in jail before evening. But here it is. It's 2 plus 2 equals 4. And here's the big crowd over here. 2 plus 2 equals 6. You folks aren't progressive. You folks are behind the times. 
You folks aren't keeping up with all the new knowledge. You folks don't understand what Einstein did for the world. You just don't understand these things. And so two plus two equals six. But when you put them together, you got to fight. You have trouble. You really have. And so along comes the great reconcilers. And they say, we must get peace. And let's have a conference between the two groups. Two plus two equals four. Will you come into a conference and we'll discuss our problems if we can't get unity out of this thing? And the other crowd says, oh, two plus two equals six. Yes, I'm, I'm willing to meet with them. And so they have a meeting and they sit down. And the first thing they say, well, now we've got a serious problem. Let's pray about it and ask God's guidance on the solution. And so they have a nice spiritual prayer meeting and they've all prayed about their problem. And after they prayed about the problem, they come up and one of the very creative thinkers, one of the most brilliant professors in the whole denomination, he gets up and he says, I've got the solution for it. This will give us peace and order. Our banks will be able to operate in harmony. And we'll have no difficulty so far as our change is concerned. He says, are you men over here willing to sacrifice a point and come down a point? And are you fellows over here willing to, to, to make a point? Would you be willing to operate on just another basis? And they say, well, I don't know. That's kind of hard. Boy, he says, it's unity. It's peace. We've got to get together. We've got to be reconciled. Two plus two equals four will not go with two plus two equals six. And so they put the pressures on. And they put political pressures on. And they put religious pressures on. And they put tremendous pressures on. You've got to make some concessions so we can be reconciled. What happens? They say, all right, we'll sign an agreement. And they come out and make the famous announcement with a great preliminary statement. Peace has been arrived at. We now have unity. And both sides have shown a very humble attitude. Both sides have shown a very agreeable attitude. And in the interest of the banking problems of the world and in the interest of all the difficulties, we now will operate on the basis that two plus two equals what? Five. That's reconciliation. That's reconciliation. Now you can understand that because we're committed to 2 plus 2 equals 4 and that's written into the universe. That's written into the very composition of the creation. And you see that. And furthermore, after they get through with all this great unity program, lo and behold, here's a little fundamentalist over here by the name of Dr. McIntyre and he says, I'm not going to sign up with you. I'm going to go on 2 plus 2 equals 4 whether you like it or not. Because that's the truth. There it is. The ministry of reconciliation under the new confession is a ministry which compromises principle and it compromises truth with evil in order to have peace and unity. And that leadership will bring this old world of ours into confusion and disaster. And we're headed down that road tonight. Where do they get this phrase, ministry of reconciliation, out of 2 Corinthians 5? And they've taken a beautiful passage there that's just as clear as anything can be. That passage, 2 Corinthians 5, tells us that Christ was without sin. Clear as can be. That passage says, if one died for all, then all were dead. 
and the reconciliation message. And the only message of reconciliation which brings men back to God and enables men to love their neighbors and to manifest the, the spirit of grace toward those with whom they live is that Christ was without sin, that Christ died for all of us because all of us were dead. And now he having wrought us to himself, we then turn to serve him with everything that we have and with all that we are. Beloved, you people here tonight better thank God from the bottom of your heart that you're living in a community and that you're in a church where your preacher sees these things and he can explain them to you and help you preserve a church on this earth which will have a ministry of reconciliation. We'll send out missionaries. We'll be personal individual witnesses to what the grace of God does for us. And we're not exalting the church. The church, we're not interested in the so-called reconciliating community. We're interested in the cross with its cleansing power in the blood. That's the message of everlasting life. Talk about revolution. Talk about changing the foundations. You are living tonight in one of the most important periods of the entire history of the Christian religion. Right here and now, they're changing the foundations. They're changing the purpose of the church. They're changing the message of reconciliation. And they've turned aside from an infallible Bible. And they've turned aside from a sinless Christ. And they've turned aside from a bloody cross. And they've turned aside from the great message of reconciliation. And now it's the church. To the church be glory. To the church be honor. And we are going to help determine that message of the church because we have some competence. Oh, my Bible says, he that glorieth, let him glory not in the church, let him glory in the Lord. And no flesh shall glory in his presence. No flesh will build a church and say, Lord, we built this great church for you. No. Of him and through him and to him be all things. To whom be glory and honor and dominion and power, world without end. The power of the gospel, the power of the cross, the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's the message we have to give to you people tonight. Believe it, my friend. Believe it with all your soul. Trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. And then go and identify yourself with a church where this message is preached. And I summon you people tonight. I, I invite you people tonight to come out of the apostasy. I invite you people tonight with all the grace that God gives us to come and help us establish Christian churches which will be only the pillar and the ground of the truth. And we'll exalt this great message of everlasting life. I invite you people to leave these apostate churches and come out and let's build churches in South Jersey. Let's build churches in the Philadelphia area. Let's go and make the sacrifices necessary so we can gather even two or three of us together about the message of the cross of Jesus Christ 
when that cross alone is the great and glorious act of reconciliation on the part of God to man. Now I hope you can see that we're on the threshold of moving out into the whole great realm of religion and we're going to get guidance from Hinduism next Sunday night. We're not, but they are. We're going to get some guidance from Buddhism next Sunday night. We're not, but they're going to get some. They're going to go find a little light over there. And they're going to find these things in all these other pagan religions. Beloved, I want you people to know that we are in the midst of the very last days upon this earth. When churches that have been committed to great and holy creeds, which exalted the Bible, lay that thing aside, and you look out across the breadth of this great, lovely, beautiful, free land of ours, and the foundations are being destroyed. And we need some preachers who can tell you people what's happening, who can bring these things home to you people, and you'll rise up and you'll say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we're going to help maintain the church of Jesus Christ as she is divinely ordained in the Holy Scriptures. And we're not going to let the church throw the Bible out and move in with her own glory. We're not going to let the church demote our Savior and turn around and say, here, we're the reconciling community. They can't reconcile anything. They have no power to change anybody's sins or change anybody's hearts. There's no such power in any visible organization on this earth. The only place there is this power is in the blood of Jesus Christ. There is power, wonder-working power. Where is the evangel? Where is the great movement of revival? Where is the great Methodist holiness movement? Where are these things that shook our country a hundred years ago? That's what we need tonight. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we thank thee that the kingdom of our God is not meat and drink, but it is righteousness and peace in the Lord. And we thank thee tonight that we've been able to explain this dialectic. We've been able to explain how the words of the Bible, reconciliation, have been taken and made to mean something entirely different than the reconciling work of Christ upon the cross. God, may the people understand it. Oh, God, open the hearts of the people. Give us a faithful remnant. Give us men and women who will be concerned about their children, where they go to school, what their children are being taught, and how they're being instructed. Give us a church, our Father, filled with people who know the Lord and who have discerning minds. Give us a great company, our Father, who are going to stand in the last days and having done all stand, waiting for that appearing of our Savior. Amen.